Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Today, we're traveling the world, solving for digestive problems, and competing in all-natural bodybuilding with Wade Lightheart. Let's give a shout out to a listener who left just an amazing five-star review on iTunes. If it so grabs you, please head on over to, actually it's Apple Podcasts now, and leave a five-star review because all of these really, really help. And so Clarice Gomez, this one goes to you. She says, awesome podcast. Boomer, host of the Decoding Superhuman podcast, highlights all aspects of health, performance optimization, and more in this can't miss podcast. Blushing already. The host and expert guests offer insightful advice and information that is helpful to anyone that listens. Clarice, your rating was extremely helpful to me having an absolutely great day. So thank you for the rating. And again, if you superhumans are listening out there, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating when you have time. It's much appreciated. Not surprising since Wade's on the show, Bioptimizers is our sponsor today. If you suffer from digestive issues like gas, bloating, cramping, even when you're eating healthy and nutritious foods, then you probably will benefit from a high quality enzyme. If you've never tried enzymes, or even if you've tried and they haven't worked, I want you to give this one a chance. As you know, I'm a big user of Bioptimizers. I use Masszymes as well as a few other products that they have. And they are one of the few supplement companies who have the best formulations and use the highest quality ingredients. And candidly, their products work. I've asked them if they can organize a great deal for all of you superhumans out there. And the Bioptimizers team delivered. Perhaps it's because Wade's on the show. Right now, you can get a bottle of Masszymes for free. All you need to do is pay for a small shipping fee, and really, there's no catch. There's no tricks, no forced continuity, and nothing to cancel. They're so confident in their products that they'll offer you a 365-day money-back guarantee, which is absolutely insane. Masszymes is a 17-enzyme full-spectrum formula with five different kinds of protease. Plus, it contains all the key enzymes needed for optimal digestion. It contains astrazyme, which is a proprietary blend of all-natural plant-derived compounds extracted from Panax ginseng, astralagus, that boosts amino acid absorption by 30 to 60%. Also very incredible. Masszymes ensures that you'll break down all the protein you consume into absorbable amino acids. So many individuals suffer from digestive issues. So I strongly suggest you head on over to their site and grab your free bottle before they either run out or just take down this offer. Go to www.masszymes.com slash boomer free. That's www.masszymes.com m-a-s-s-z-y-m-e-s dot com slash boomer, as in my name, B-O-O-M-E-R-F-R-E-E, all one word. You'll automatically get your free bottle applied to your shopping cart. 
My guest today is a three-time Canadian national all-natural bodybuilding champion. He's a former Mr. Universe competitor. He's the host of the Awesome Health podcast. He's an advisor to the American Anti-Cancer Institute. He's a co-founder and president at Bioptimizers, and he's a vegetarian. He's one of the world's premier authorities on natural nutrition and training methods, and he majored in sports science at University of New Brunswick. He's authored numerous books on health, nutrition, and exercise, and has sold them in over 80 countries. I want you guys to welcome to the show Wade Lightheart, who over the past couple of months has become quite a good friend. I enjoy his company's products and we get into some of that today, but we touch mostly on spirituality, travel, all natural bodybuilding, how vegetarian comes into play here and why digestion became his main focus. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Wade Lightheart, and you can check out the show notes at decodingsuperhuman.com slash bioptimizers. That's decodingsuperhuman.com slash B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S. Enjoy my conversation with Wade Lightheart. Wade, this is a conversation that I want to have for a long time. So thank you for coming on the show. Boomer, great to be here. Thank you. Um, so when you and I were introduced, we had a pretty long discussion about, not, not about some of the things we're going to cover later today, but about travel. And I've heard a number of your interviews. And one of the things that you've talked about before was uh, kind of this you know, desire to go out and meet spiritual masters, but also travel. And because both you and I come from North America, what made you decide to hit the road? Great question. So first and foremost, I grew up in a very uh, rural environment and extremely restricted, uh, not just in the location, but also I would say in the thinking. Mm -hmm. And I was really frustrated. And so my very first plane trip was actually when I was 22 years old. I took a train, a plane from New Brunswick, Canada, which is a little province next to Maine. And I had, and I was on a standby ticket one way. It was when I finally left and quote unquote, went West young man. Yeah. And there you go. I did, I did the jump to, uh, Montreal, Toronto, um, Winnipeg, Calgary and Vancouver. It was like standby flight, like just the absolute milk run of Canada. And, but at the, but at the end of the, like it's the end of the day and I'm, um, I'm in Vancouver, Canada. And prior to that, I had like, my dad was like a road warrior. Mm -hmm. And so everywhere we went, my dad drove and we'd have to beg him to just stop to pee at the (laughs) gas station or whatever, like, cause we've got to make good time. And I went, wait a second. I've just been to every major city in Canada. I had breakfast in the morning on the East Coast, and I'm having lunch in the afternoon on the West Coast, thanks to the time zone shift. And I'm like, I'm in. This is the way to travel. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, and so I, you know, my, I, I went to California right after that. I took a bus and then a train and, and, and lived in California for a little while, uh, you know, just experimenting with the hostel world. And I, I went into a, host, a hostel. And I remember in, in California, 
Yeah, I was 22 years old. I was in Venice Beach, California. Ooh. And uh, I was staying at this hostel called Jim's at the Beach, uh, which was right next to where Jim Morrison used to live. Oh, and like yeah, Mor- really, is Morrison Hotel yeah, in the Venice Beach? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he had a place I, I used to Venice idolize that guy. Yeah. Yeah, he was amazing. He was a poet and kind of yeah. all that part of that whole culture. And I, I was, you know, seeing my idol. I went to Joe Gold, met Joe Gold and all those kind of things. But I'm sitting at a, at a table with uh, probably seven or eight people. And everybody was from some other part of the planet. Mm-hmm. And coming from a place where you didn't see anybody from anywhere in this rural environment of Canada, very <laughs> restricted, all of a sudden... I was hearing about all these far off places and the experiences and the accents of these people and the cultural values. And, and I was so enamored with that idea. I was like, wow, there's so many places to go see in the world and things to, to see. And I, I, I want to experience those things. And so, you know, as years went by, I, I ended up um, working when I, my, I went back to Vancouver and started my business under the advice of Joel Gold, who told me, don't stay here in California. So Joel, just for thing. people who don't know who Joel Gold is, Gold's Gym, right? Yeah, Gold's Gym and World's Gym. So he oh. founded Gold's Gym. He sold that. And then he was kind of angry that Gold's did so well that he created World Gym as well and started <laughs> that franchise. So it's kind of a funny story. But yeah, kind of one of the godfathers of the gym industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gave me some advice said, you know, go home and get yourself together economically because this city will eat you up. And he was probably right. So I took his advice and went to Vancouver and started my career in, in health and fitness, working in stores and stuff. But I always had this dream. And one of my clients, I became a personal trainer. And one of my clients turned out to be, at the time, one of the leading offshore investment advisors of the entire world. And we developed a fantastic friendship. And he's still a mentor of mine today. And he had told me, like he had wrote books about all these countries and different business codes and tax codes. And, and, and I found this like, wow, you know, I was exposed to all these ideas. And keep in mind, this is, you know, to almost 25 years ago. And I, uh, when Matt and I started the precursor to our, our business that we have today, and I had competed at Mr. Universe and went to India and, and got that exposure and, mm-hmm. you know, it was wonderful we had the opportunity to work from home digitally. And, and a lot of people today are experiencing that now. They've been forced into this world that we went into, you know, 16, 17 years ago. And after about 18 months, we decided that we were going to take up this idea as Canadians and we could move to a foreign jurisdiction and see what that was like. So we decided that we were going to move to Panama mm-hmm. and experience that. And we learned, I mean, we did everything wrong. <laughs> it was just a total disaster. You know, we, we took 30 uh, Pimsleur lessons on how to speak Spanish, figured we have it down. We get down there and realize that we are super ill-equipped to understand anything. Yeah. What, and, what's you know, it like studying or starting a business in sort of a foreign country for the first time? Well, the, well, the good thing was, is that we had an online business and moved to a foreign jurisdiction. Okay. But I would say that the, 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 the the, the, the number one word I would say is pedestrian. Mm-hmm. I think as North Americans, we are very ignorant to the centuries of systems and processes that we take advantage of every single day, whether we're going to the store, going to a post office, going to a banking system, that is really part of the culture 
of the industrialized democracies of West. When you move to a banana republic or to a culture that doesn't necessarily have that system built in place for hundreds of years, you, you know, you, you, you might have the technology of today, but you have a, a, a culture that doesn't recognize any of those values. Yeah. So manana, I learned, doesn't actually mean the literal trans- translation of tomorrow. It means just not today. <laughs> <laughs> so you're so, not going to get it tomorrow morning. You're going to probably get it in a couple of weeks kind of thing. Is that- if you're lucky, maybe <laughs> never, depending on how angry you get by yeah. your level of frustration. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've got quite a bit of experience living abroad, but... Um, it, was the level of anger, if you raised it, does that mean you get it sooner? Or does that kind of have the inverse effect, meaning it just disappears? Generally, it's the inverse. Okay. Because what's interesting, especially if you go to the Asian cultures, um, in Asian culture, um, any conflict or anything that causes the losing of face mm-hmm. is considered very crude and rude Yeah, where uh, Americanism, let's say is like, Hey, let's get her done. Let's fight it out, hug it out after and Yahoo high five each other and move on to the next thing. It's very aggressive and proactive. Yeah. Well, inside of these cultures that have existed, some of them for, you know, thousands of years, Mm -hmm. no, we're going to do everything and the proper people need to be spoken to and those need to be agreed in this process. And, what seems very redundant is just part of the structural components of that culture. And that, and I, I came face to face with my own cultural ignorance and it took me oh, almost a decade to really get the, the level of ignorance that I really had and the level of projection that I was putting out there to uh, how I thought the world needs to be. And I think that was beneficial to me in the long run. Um, but although it was a frustrating learning curve. So uh, let's talk about it. That's a very important point because I think there's a lot of people right now who are either exploring living abroad or being forced to live outside of their normal city in kind of remote areas. What allowed you to kind of unveil the secrets and recognize that projection? Was there anything in particular that you did? Yeah, absolutely. First thing, if you're going to live abroad, so let's, let's go to the living abroad because I think that's the more difficult challenge. Yeah. Um, the first thing, and this was given to me as advice, when you first get there, get a, it's very shocking. Uh, I, I got a little p- piece of paper like this and my mentor who had traveled internationally before, before the internet and all that stuff, said, take this and write down a list of things every morning that you would like to achieve on that particular day so that you have some form of semblance, semblance of order and that you're getting your thoughts together and okay, let's do this and let's, do, let's get some wins because the simplest tasks are often very complicated. And that's number one. Number two is get connected to some form of expat community. Mm-hmm. Your expat community, whether that is a co-working space or a more formal expat community, depending on where you're going or you know what level of experience that you want to have. These are the people who have just recently gone through everything that you're experiencing. So they're going to be able to alleviate some of what I call the, 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 uh, I call it the idiot tax. When you do not know 
the rules of the culture, the oh. economics of a culture. It's, it, it, many cultures say, aha, you know, here, here's a guy from America <laughs> or Canada. It's party time. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna rip him off. We're going to charge him more. We're going to take him on an adventure. We're going to get all these things. Yep. So you need to get up to speed as fast as possible. And to also alleviate as a sense of, you have to understand how that person's seeing the world. That person may be struggling all their life and, and sees this is an easy score and it's, it's, it's their value that they need to get that extra money from you or that extra situation because it's their duty to their family in order to do this. And so rather than see it as I'm being taken advantage of, you have to see it as eyes of, Hey, look, this guy just making a buck. And when you generally, when you call them out on it and you know the score, they go, oh, okay, he's, he's figured it out. But fine. We, we kind of go on that. Um, but, so that's the first thing. Second thing, if you can make, um, if you can get connected with what I would call uh, an entrepreneurial effective local. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is there's always people in every culture who will learn your language, that you, you know, your, your, your base language, because they represent, hey, you know what? If I can be service to these people, I know that I'm going to do really well for myself. Yep. And so my successes and my failures in the various places that I've lived are directly correlated to how quickly I get a community to figure out what's going on, like of expats, and how quickly I was able to build a relationship with a local who could help me navigate the ins and outs of that culture, whether that was getting a bank account, whether that was you know being able to mail something or bring or ship something in or those things. Those two things make the ease and whether they're negotiating contracts for you or whatever. And keep in mind, they're probably going to make some money on the side and they're going to make some extra. And believe me, that's money well spent. You want to take care of that person as best as possible because they're going to be your best ticket to integrating with the, with the nuances of the culture that you don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so true. And I think what's interesting is like, I moved to Singapore when I was 25 and it was one of the easier moves because, you know, Singapore is very expat friendly, right? And then I moved to the yes. Netherlands when I was 30 and that was actually harder uh, because even though it's expat friendly, the entire government operates in in Dutch. And I don't know about you, but my Dutch is pretty awful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's uh, that, whole, uh, that whole experience that you just went through, I, like I went through that as soon as I moved to the Netherlands, more so than I did when I moved to Singapore. Um, Wait, I want to talk, you mentioned India. And so this is a, when this comes up, I always want to double click on that because I've spent quite a lot of time in India. What drew you there? Yeah, great question. So in 1996, I read a book called Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. And what I was uh, enthralled with that, and it's considered one of the great spiritual classics. And, and here, Yogananda was a uh, yogi, a mystic from the East, who came to the United States in 1920, right after World War I. He was on the first steamer from India to North America. And he is essentially is the godfather of ushering in all Eastern philosophy into the West. Mm-hmm. Yoga culture, Eastern philosophy, he opened the door for the rest of the, them to come and face an incredible amount of hardships. He's got a great video uh, on Netflix called Awake. You can kind of get an introduction to his story. But his book uh, was a beautiful introduction into the cultural values of the ancient culture of Bharat, 
which is the original name of India. India was a name that was put on it by British colonists Mm -hmm. and it's traditional spiritual traditions. And what I found was, is he resolved all my issues with organized religion. So I'm like, here's a guy from another country that is, that understands the the, the Christian practices from which I grew up in the Judeo Christian practices better than anybody I've actually heard here Mm -hmm. and actually has an explanation of Islam and he has an expression of Hinduism and Buddhism. And he's got this, you know, like I need to figure out how these guys know this. And he said, this is part of the cultural heritage of this country and it's what's bulwarked India through thousands and thousands of years is this tradition within the culture to venerate people who dedicate their life to spiritual comprehension. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I've never heard of that. That's amazing. I need to go check this out. Mm -hmm. And so um, I had the good fortune in 2003, a friend of mine, a very, very close friend of mine was having a wedding in Delhi. And I'm like, great. This ought to be fun. And, and so I was, uh, flew into this event. And of course, if anyone hasn't gone to an Indian wedding, I think everybody <laughs> in life should go to one. It's one of those things that you have to tick the box on, right? It's just, uh, it's great. Yeah, it was absolutely insane. I mean, like we had fire breathers and elephants and we were marching through the streets and there was chariots and white horses and money being thrown and, and chaos and police and people diving. I mean, it was the most chaotic celebration of three days I have ever seen in my entire life. Mm-hmm. And I was in love with it. I was in love with the, the juxtaposition of the Indian culture where you see the absolute best aspects of humanity right next to the absolute worst living yeah. in some sort of chaotic harmony. Mm-hmm. And, and I always, I, I, I tell the people who haven't been there is like, whether you like India or hate India, it doesn't matter. When you go there, India will change your perception of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what had happened to me. And after that, of course, we were at a five-star hotel and all experience in that. But then I said, well, we did the the circuit. We went to you know, Agra. the Taj Mahal yeah. and Agra, you know, you do the whole thing and Jaipur and all that sort of stuff. And then I went to Yogananda's ashram, like in Bihar, which is the poorest state. And all of my Indian friends are like, no way, don't go there. That's really-. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I went to Delhi, uh, got to the old Delhi and went on a train and was like, waited at the train station. The train was 18 hours late. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew it was coming. And then you get on the train. It was a problem. But, but I, I just had this crazy event and a lot of people will talk about the synchronicity that ends up coming out of the chaos and had these beautiful events and ended up on a train to the Hajj to go to, to um, Dakshineswar, which is on the Ganges and all these kind of radical wild event where I was really riding on trains with people of different culture and meeting them and connecting with them and living in ashrams. I lived in an ashram and to see what ashram life was like and how people dedicated themselves and also in kind of the five-star Bollywood kind of experience. And Mm -hmm. so it was just such a radical thing. And after that point, I fell in love with traveling period. And of Mm -hmm. course, you know, a year and a half later, I, I ended up in, in Panama with Matt. I stayed there for I think eight or nine months. And then, I was back in Vancouver and then I was on to the next place, the next place. And, and it really hasn't s- stopped since that time. We were kind of t- t- talking before this. I, I keep trying to stay in one place, yeah. but for some reason the, the ball keeps rolling. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say is sort of like um, the top couple of experiences that you've had as you've traveled abroad? Oh, great question. Um, I would say maybe my all-time favorite destination was Bali, Indonesia. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting I, I'm getting married there, so <laughs> it's a good it's choice. A, it's 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 an incredible culture, but and I think it's a it. it I, I stayed in a little place in called Ubud, which a lot mm-hmm. of people end up in. It's kind of a traditional artist community, and there's a lot there's a lot of co working spaces for uh, you know digital nomads, sort of speaking. Um, having traveled a lot prior to and living in different places, it was probably one of the softest landings of any culture I ever went to. So I went in, there was a well-established um, community in a place called the Hubud in Ubud. And, and here were hundreds of digital entrepreneurs. There was great food. Uh, there was a, a great yoga community. There was a great um, um, gym culture. There was a gym culture there. There was a business culture there. There was expats that I met relatively quickly. Um, the Balinese people are extraordinary. They live very much within their own culture and they're 100% acceptance of the Western culture. So there's a, there's a symbiotic relationship of, of almost a, of a, a kind of a separation in, in a weird way. Uh, and, and yet a merging of those two ideas and, and just had everything that I could have. I had internet, I had connections, I had food, I had exercise, I had everything. I had the perfect mix of everything that I wanted from the Western world with the perfect mix of everything and the value of the, of the Eastern world. And, uh, to me, that's, that was, that was probably the highlight event. Um, going to India, I went back to India about a year and a half ago. Um, and to did some, get, did some experiences in, you know, I, I went, I went up into Varanasi, which is the Holy city. Yeah. Uh, I have a spiritual teacher who I went on a, uh, kind of a, I don't know what you call it. Uh, you go on your kind of spiritual trek or whatever and yeah. you want to pay homage to some of these events, to these events, pilgrimages, I guess they call them. And having going into the temple there and seeing the level of devotion of people who are living in, in, in absolutely brutal conditions, mm-hmm. some of the most brutal conditions you can imagine, uh, definitely, uh, is inspiring to see how they're able to develop so much faith and so much devotion and so much acceptance of the harshness of life for many of these people. And and they find a way to manage and transcend that. And you go, wow, this is pretty, pretty miraculous. So, so those were definitely some of the highlights, um, different reasons. I think the ease and development of the business culture in Singapore to, to, you know, start a company. I mean, you can, you can <laughs> land there in the morning, start a company, have a bank account and, and be out by the evening. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, you got an office, you got a business, and, you got a name and everything you got a bank works account. and it's all super and efficient. Every, yeah. And everything, everything works and you know, you're on to whatever you need to do the next day. Conversely, you go to a place like Panama, which is, you know, very much, influenced by America, mm-hmm. but the, the banking systems and the business systems and the legal systems are just absolute horrific mm-hmm. to deal with. And so you go, wow, you know, like you, you would never imagine that. Um, I also would say that um, various parts of Europe, uh, I think, are really one. I, I spent some time in Prague. Okay. And that's, that's one of my favorite cities just sheer because I can stand in the middle of the down, the old town downtown and see nothing but Gothic buildings and it's just be gorgeous. overwhelmed with, with, yeah. with the, the architecture of Europe, which was mostly destroyed in most cities in world war two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so going back to gold's gym and kind of your, 
your bodybuilding career. And I may come back with another question on digital sure. nomading, but so you're a bodybuilder and I have, cause it's, there's a lot of stereotypes with bodybuilders in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to consume pounds and pounds of steak and all of this stuff, but you are vegetarian. And so what was the impetus for becoming vegetarian? Great question again. So I followed all that process through um, until 1998 when I went to my first national championship. So I did a, you know, six times a day, the Spartan like discipline, you know, the mm-hmm. eating is probably the most difficult part of the bodybuilding diet. It's just eating enough calories to create, to force growth inside your body. So what kind of, if just to give people perspective, because I think this may be, you may be the first bodybuilder I've had on the show. Um, what kind of calorie quantity are we talking about here? Well, when I'm trying to gain mass, so, so for example, I'm not, I have terrible genetics. I was not naturally muscular or big mm-hmm. or easily to grow. Um, I think in the highest forms, that's what you do need that, but you, you've got to eat five, six times a day was the culture, you, you know, and, and each one of those meals, what I was trying to gain weight would probably be anywhere between 800 and 1200 calories. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it's okay to have one or two of those meals a day or three meals like that a day. Maybe when you do that six times a day, consistently over time, you're putting extraordinary demands on your digestive system Yeah, and you're putting extraordinary demands on your physiological system as well. And, um, and so you, you do all that. And in 1998, I went to the, my first national championships and I had my coach with Scott Abel, who's a very well-renowned coach, coached over 400 champions from like the bottom rate to the Olympia. And I remember sitting down in his, his office after, about six weeks after that first event, uh, which I didn't win. And uh, I was about 230 pounds. I'm f- five foot eight on a good day. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and, and, and I'm about 230 pounds. I have veins in my abs. And, uh, and, and I'm, he's like, okay, we're here's what you need to do in order to win. And that was going to entail me really doing a lot of drugs, um, you know, things like growth hormone, things like that. And I like, you know, I, I don't, it, it became a drug culture. Yeah. And I want to, I want to just lay it out there for people as exactly what the highest levels of performance sports, whether it's bodybuilding, whether it's football, whether it's, it's uh, every sport, cycling, right? Uh, y- y- Believe me, people are using every single thing they can. Okay? Yeah, everybody's <laughs> looking for that edge, especially at those levels, right? You're talking about 100%. half percent differences in people. Yeah, and I, I really wish they would just actually just reveal what's going on in professional sports on all levels so that yeah. people can get an accurate perception of things. But bottom line is back then it was really taboo to talk about. And I was like, I don't think I want to go down this route because at that time we'd just gone from Dorian Yates yeah. to – to Ronnie, Ronnie Coleman. Coleman. Yeah. And I'm looking at Ronnie Coleman and I'm like, you know, he's, he's a freak. Dorian, by the yeah. way, is a huge guy too. <laughs> yeah. And another thing about Dorian is I don't think he had that great of genetics relative to the level of development he achieved, but Ronnie Coleman was just this, he, I mean, he, he was undefeatable. I mean, it's like, this is the, there is no, but there's nothing I could do ever in this physiological world to beat this guy. So if I cannot be the best at the sport, what am I doing this for? Which I, I retired from competitive bodybuilding at that point and moved to the West Coast, got myself a supplement business and, and my personal training thing and started my business career. I went through a down party stage and, and I'm leading to the point of what 
I had to give you the preamble before what happened. And then essentially after the party stage, which is very similar to what Dorian Yates experienced after his career. Yeah. At Britain, uh, it's, it's basically you're grieving the loss of something that you've dedicated, you know, the better part of a decade to. And what happened is I had a, a metaphysical experience with Yogananda mm-hmm. uh, and began doing a meditation path. So I started a meditation path. That was about 2000. So a couple of years, I kind of was off the reservation, so to speak. And, and then in 2001, I started reading his books on spirituality and stuff. And then I came across a book called The Holy Science, which was written by his teacher, mm-hmm. Sri Teswar. And he talked about the digestive system and the nervous system and the right diet for advanced states of consciousness. And I thought, it's a pretty good argument physiologically. Let me give it a shot. So I did a two-week experiment of becoming a vegetarian for two weeks. And I did two weeks more. And it was a month. And then I said, I'll do another month. And I did two months. And then I just said, I guess I'm done. Mm-hmm. And I haven't eaten meat ever since that time. Now, of course, being in the fitness industry, coaching other people in this world, then you know, people are like, what do you mean you're not eating meat? And I said, I don't know. I just think I'm done. I'm just on this kind of experiment. And people are like, come on, you can't, you can't, you can't be a bodybuilding and a fitness trainer and you can't be lean and all this sort of stuff. And where do you get like, your amino acids from? <laughs> egg, you know, and, and, and at the time, I didn't have answers to those questions. Yeah. And um, I met a guy who was a vegetarian tennis star. His name eludes me at this point. And he had gone through this in the tennis world. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him. And I said, do you think it's possible that I could be a champion athlete as a vegetarian? And he looked at me and he goes, Go do it. And I went, yeah, that's a simple answer. Just go do it. Yeah. And not? so it, it, just go do it. Stop, stop the story. Stop b- the, 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 the collective beliefs and just go do it. So I called up my old coach. Uh, I said, hey, Scott, look, I, I got this radical experiment idea that I want to do. And he's like, what is it, Wade? And I said, I want to, I want to, there's drug testing and i want to go win a national championship as a vegetarian he goes you can't do it i said i understand that you believe that i can't do it all i'm asking for you from you is to work with me on this experiment to see if we can do it and i had read a piece in in, in my in the spiritual text that i read from yoga and it said that if some if something is really right for you and exists and it doesn't exist, it'll be created for you. And I'm like, I'm going to put this guy to the test. If this is really what I'm supposed to do, and this is true what I'm feeling in my sight, I am going to be able to win a national championship as a vegetarian and, and, and realize my dream of going to the Mr. Universe contest. I, I had no illusions that I was going to be Mr. Universe. Mm-hmm. I knew physiologically, I probably didn't have the genetics for it. But I said, you know what? I think I can be good enough to get to the world's best and doggone it, let's see if I can do it. And so we did an experiment and... Uh, Literally two years later, I was standing on, I had won my national championships and I had was, uh, went to the Mr. Universe and it turned out that the Mr. Universe ended up in India. So I ended up back in India again uh, after that. And the ironic part of the whole story was, and a lot of people don't know this, and um, when I, my first year of competition uh, as a vegetarian and drug-free athlete, I was competing against a guy by the name of Kevin Weiss, who is just an absolute physical specimen. Mm -hmm. And 
I lost to him in that first year. And so the next year I had to requalify for the, I could have went to the national championship. Well, I'm not good enough. So I, I spent another year training and won the qualification show, won the overall in that show, and then was going to the national championships that year, which Kevin would be competing at. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm ready for him. I could take him. It's going to be close. And we did the show. And just prior to the show, the IFBB, for the first time in 56 years, announces that they're changing the weight classes. And now Kevin and I would not be in the same weight class. He was in a different weight class. I was in another one. We both won our titles. Mm-hmm. And we both got to go to the world championships. He actually didn't even bother going. He, he, foregoed, he, he foregone the expense for something. But the reality is, is I don't think... Had I had to go head to head with them, I don't think I would have beat him. I think he was better than me. But the universe conspired in my favor. I got to go to the, the, the Mr. Universe and the rest is history. And, and from that point, and of course, then I had a major digestive health crisis, mm-hmm. which started me to look into enzymes and probiotics and all these things for your digestive health after that, because we were still doing some things wrong as vegetarians <laughs> trying yeah. to compete in an athletic world. So uh, just before we go go on to that, you do eat eggs, right? So that earlier comment about amino acids. Uh, Great I'm, question. So I, I have, um, I go on and off eggs periodically. Yeah. So I, I spent, um, in, in getting up to those first two years, I did whey protein at the time. So I did uh, just, just milk. I did no eggs during that first two years, Mm -hmm. had the major crisis digestively, Mm -hmm. and then went to a completely raw food diet for the next two years. Mm -hmm. And um, then when I came back and made a comeback in 2007, I actually competed. I won a couple more national championships and went to another world's on a raw food diet. I wanted to really like, let's go right to the absolute extreme. But that has some real limitations socially. And so Mm -hmm. since that time, I've, I go off and on eggs. Like right now I haven't had eggs in about six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm doing an experiment without them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not against them and I'm not here to be a vigilante vegan. I'm not here to make any comments about any of that stuff. So it's something, I think there's some very big advantages for certain people to have eggs Mm -hmm. and there's some people that can't. And so you have to make those adjustments to your own uh, tolerance. One of the reasons why I I wanted to have you on the show is because both you and your part business partner, Matt have very different diets and you're not dogmatic about it, which I love. And I think, one of the things I've heard you say before is that we're all individual. And so you're not going out there and preaching to people like, hey, you should be vegetarian. And I love that. So thank you, Wade. So one of my favorite tools in the tool shed for enhancing sleep, meditation, as well as overall cognition is a light I stick up my nose. Now I don't stick it in other places, but I just stick it up my nose. And then the rest of the device simply rests on my head. It's called transcranial and intranasal photobiomodulation. And yes, it's hard to spell, but I find it extremely beneficial to me. My favorite device when it comes to these things, which as I said, benefits my sleep, which is oh so important, is the V-Lite, V-I-E-L-I-G-H-T. We've had Dr. Lou Lim on the show before, and that was an absolutely fascinating conversation on many levels. If you want to check out 
my favorite transcranial and intranasal photobiomodulation device, head on over to vlight.com. I have the NeuroAlpha. I've had it for over a year now. And I got to say, it's one of those purchases that I just don't regret. That's vlight.com. Check out the NeuroAlpha if you want mine, or you can get the NeuroDuo if you want to double up. But you use the code BOOMER and you're going to get 10% off. Let's get back to my conversation with Wade Lightheart. Yeah, I think I think there's a I have a pet peeve with the whole vegetarian world and that is there's these vigilante vegans which are making these moral proclamations on everybody else in the world and that is certainly not any way to promote something even if you believe that to be true. You obviously want to be inviting and attractive to something, but it's also just it's just not dealing with people with where they're at and mm-hmm. what they want to achieve. And my business partner, for example, is a ketogenic guy. Uh, and, and as I sometimes drift into the raw foodism, he drifts into carnivore. I mean, we, we, we even experiment with those extremes. And, and I've done well on virtually every diet out there. I've been a meat eater. I've been a paleo guy. I've been a vegetarian. I've been a raw foodist and all everything in between. The only thing I haven't done is total carnivore meat. I didn't yeah. do that because it kind of came up after me and, He's experimented with it and I get the feedback. But what we find is what are the common elements that we can find within these dietary aspects? And every diet has advantages and every diet has disadvantages. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then you have to put that over the individual genetics, the epigenetics, the lifestyle, the social structure, and the religious maybe in t- intentions because yeah. there's a lot of religious aspects uh, around diets around the world, whether you're Jewish or Muslim or uh, you know, staunch Hinduism or you know, all, these have various influences. Mm-hmm. And so understanding those things and being able to adapt the diet so that you can navigate life uh, to your, and, and be at your best and feel great and, and not make these kind of dogmatic decisions that compromise your health in the long term. And for every person I've seen advocating some sort of diet, you watch that person over 20 years time and guess what? 20 years from now, they're going to come back and say, you know what? I was really stuck in this and then I had this crisis and that happened and then I had to change my belief system. So I think it's important to to remain flexible. Uh, I I like being a flexitarian. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about that digestive crisis because this is something I went through myself and uh, I would love to hear just sort of what that looked like so that people may listening to this, be able to recognize that in themselves. Great. So as a competitive athlete, um, I was on an extremely restrictive performance diet and that by optimizers, we have three areas that people focus on aesthetics, performance, and health. Most people are attracted into this industry through aesthetics. They want to look good. They want to be sexually attractive, whatever. And some people are attracted because they have a performance parameter for their athletic environment, or maybe they're a business guy and they want to be sharp and, you know, clear that it, but ultimately the triangle always ends up at the bottom where you need to get to health. (laughs) Eventually you're fighting, you're fighting the degeneration of your body. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so eventually at some point in that journey, your health becomes the number one priority. The sooner you get there, the better. And you don't have to sacrifice the other two. I think you can enhance it. And so why we look at all things. So for me, following that really performance restricted diet with the limited information I had, I was taking in, I, I always say I was trying to apply a meat eating mentality to a vegetarian diet. So I was pounding, you know, 250 grams of whey protein and, you know, in divided dosages, I was going to that contest. 
And after that contest, I felt miserable. I ate my joints ache. I felt terrible. My brain fog all the time. I'm super overtrained, all that sort of stuff. After that contest, I gained 42 pounds of fat and water in 11 weeks. I went from Mr. Universe to Mr. Marshmallow. Wow. Right. Okay. So, so, so now here I am. So I'm supposed to be the epitome of uh, aesthetic or cosmetic fitness, right? And mm-hmm. that's really everything that you see in the magazine is cosmetic fitness. And, and I had, I'd sacrificed my health. I thought that I had given that up by, you know, using excessive amounts of drugs and all that stuff, which was pervasive prior to, I thought, well, if I just do this diet thing and don't eat any of that stuff, I'm going to be healthy. Wrong. No, I had a performance-based diet. I wasn't a health diet. And, 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 and what happened is I met a guy by the name of Dr. Michael O'Brien, who was a senior citizen. He had glowing skin and eyes that looked right through you. And he was super smart. And he had cured all these people of these radical illnesses, and, and including cirrhosis of the liver and cancer for himself. And I went up to him after the, his lecture and I said, look, Dr. O'Brien, I love the lecture. I love what you're talking about. I've never heard anything like this in my entire history of nutrition and exercise physiology and stuff. It's obviously working for you. What went wrong with me? What, what, what's your assessment here? And he said, Wade, this changed my life. He said, Wade, you've learned to build the body from the outside in. I'm going to show you how to build the body from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, what's the sound of one hand clapping, you know, bang. And I just embodied it. I took massive amounts of enzymes and probiotics and minerals and went on an alkaline diet. You know, went raw, did all this sort of stuff. And in six months, I recaptured my physique. I recaptured my health. I felt better than I ever felt before. And Matt and I had started a a bodybuilding business uh, online teaching people. And I said, hey, look, I got to teach what's going to happen to all these athletes that are just going for this cosmetic look. We built a book called Freaky Big Naturally. We ended up coaching about 15,000 people over the next few years mm-hmm. and got all this metadata from all these type of people trying to achieve a better looking physique, a more healthier physique. And we created this amazing culture and got a lot of data. And then I was able to replicate that in 2007. I got all that data, figured out how to win championships on using 85 grams of protein a day on a completely raw food diet, Wow, which is the most extreme that's actually, version. That seems like, extremely low for, you know. It's ridiculously low, but I was able to change my digestive health in a way that I was able to digest, absorb, and utilize the food that I was eating, where prior to when I was eating 250 grams of protein, I thought I was digesting, absorbing, and utilizing that, but that's why I ended up screwing myself up, wrecking my enzymatic levels, making my HCL go up, putting myself into gut dysbiosis. All these things was just a natural result of the diet I was following. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, so there are probably a hundred different questions that I could ask off of that, but let's start with the basic principles here because, uh, you know, enzymes aren't necessarily people that are things that people look at every single day in terms of, yeah, they're probably looking at some flashy nootropic. They're probably looking at something, uh, super, super sexy, whatever, but enzymes, how would you explain it to somebody who may just wonder what the hell are we talking about right now? Well, enzymes are catalysts to every single chemical reaction inside the body. The difference between living organisms and dead organisms is enzymatic potential. In other words, how many chemical reactions that you can particularly duck. So a plant versus a human versus a stone are largely in part as the amount and variance of chemical reactions. And so inside of every human, there's at least 25,000 different enzymes doing a variety of the things that we never think of. It's like, how many people can really explain electricity? 
but how many people actually use it? Yeah. And it's all good until you're out of electricity. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the enzymes are the bridge between the living and the dead. Mm-hmm. And there was a fellow by the name of Dr. Edward Howe who wrote a book called Enzyme Nutrition and another one, Food Enzymes for Health and Longevity, which was buried in the Harvard library for decades until a guy by the name of Victoris Kolvinskas found it doing some health research and said, oh my God, look at this guy. He's actually described the modern world of what's going to happen. And so how is this guy that back in the 30s and 40s started doing experiments on animals? And he started to see that modern uh, culture of farming, monoculture farming, um, chemicals, using the, the use of chemicals, particularly after World War II, um, the cooking and processing of food, and people weren't getting their food in a frustrator, it's high enzymatic potential. And so he started doing experiments on animals by feeding them a diet that was deficient in enzymes, basically no living food. Mm-hmm. Humans are the only people that cook their food. Anything over 114 degrees, you destroy all the enzyme potential. So every living organism has enzymes in it. And when you ill it or kill it or consume it, you in a fresh state, you get the enzyme potential of the animal in addition to the protein, carbohydrates, and fats. Yeah. So fruits, plants, snakes, seals, elk, whatever it is you're consuming, if, and all species consume it in a live state and they get the enzymes. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, our definition of food didn't include the enzyme component of our food. So that misnomer, and it didn't include the probiotics that would normally come with food. Like if you take a carrot out of the garden, it's got the probiotics that are relative to breaking that down, that live on that food that will actually digest that. And so we have that symbiotic relation. We don't have that. And so how started feeding all these animals deficient, enzyme deficient diets. And by the third generation, they had strange sociological behavior, the inability to procreate, and a rapid increase in genetic-based diseases. And he suggested that after World War II, he made a statement and said that within three generations, humans would have those same three issues. And here we are today, a massive rise in genetic diseases, a lot of weirdness in the social world that we're all experiencing right now. And, and look at the fertility clinics. Look at the inability to procreate or the natural thing in industrialized civilizations. Uh, procreation drops off significantly as the social behavior changes, as does the rise in genetic illness. And so I was like, wow, there's something to this. And so I started supplementing my diet with exogenous enzymes at, uh, enzymes at that time. And they worked like magic. They fixed my mm-hmm. digestion. I, my brain went clear. My skin was better. I had more energy. I could recover better. And I was like, wow, this is just... Uh, this is just un- unbelievable. Um, let me dive further and further into it. And eventually that's how we started the company by optimizers, uh, Matt and I. Mm-hmm. And so was the first product Masszymes or was it something Very else? first product was Masszymes. So what we recognized is that proteolytic enzymes are, proteolytic enzyme reactions inside the body begin to diminish by the age of 28 for most people. Mm-hmm. That's why you don't yeah. see athletes. Athletes usually peak physically by the age of 28, and they, and they start to degenerate physically, and oftentimes they, they, they make up for it with intellectual growth, which you can go on a much further trajectory before, even though they have the smarts, the body isn't able to deliver. At the mm-hmm. highest levels of performance, those micro changes are, are huge. And so we realized that proteolytic enzymes were responsible for recovery, 
for muscle building, for metabolism, brain function, and that undigested proteins, particularly like it was in my case, is the number one cause of inflammatory reactions, whether it's allergic reactions, whether it's skin conditions, whether it's digestive disease or the, the fermentation of, of foods and the feeding of bad bacteria and creating this. So I was like, let's focus on that. And so we created a kind of a 17 different enzyme concoction that uh, featured proteases, all the different types of proteases at the first, so that we could basically have something that would work for virtually anybody's diets, and particularly people who had focused a lot on protein, or even if they were like me as a vegetarian, they didn't get enough protein, as recognized by the training circles, which was one gram per pound of body weight. Well, you're yeah. on a raw food diet. Try and get a gram per pound of body weight. Good luck. <laughs> virtually impossible. You'll, you'll blow up from fiber content. Yeah. So uh, the bottom line is we were able to resolve that issue, and, and now that's gone through three different upgrades uh, over the last, uh, last number of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you guys look at fat metabolism? Because you and I were chatting before, and you know, traditionally people would use something like ox bile, right? And so yes. how do you look at that? Yeah, great question. And so um, when it comes to digestion itself, there's three main enzyme families. Mm-hmm. proteases which digest protein amylase which digest carbohydrates and lipases which digest fats mm-hmm. and the ironic thing about this is matt being a ketogenic guy me being a plant guy, i always had an aversion for fats yeah. and, and my body just didn't break down fats very well um if i would try and attempt a ketogenic diet as soon as i would hit a certain threshold of fats i would start to see fats and fat oil literally in my stool and i knew yeah. that i wasn't going to feel good be. yeah matt who had a high sugar content content as a young man uh, mm-hmm. found that his blood sugar would go crazy if he eats too much sugar he's yep. self-confessed addicted addict to sugar as we all are and so he, he just doesn't metabolize it very well i metabolize carbohydrates no problem didn't have a lot of sugar in my youth Maybe that's the case, or it could be just my body produces more amylase-based enzymes than it does fat-based, lipase-based enzymes. And so when we looked at the equation, we, we would see with all the clients that we would coach and, and develop that there were patterns. People that were subject to depression uh, oftentimes didn't digest proteins very well. People who were you know, type 2 diabetics, almost none of them digested carbohydrates very well. Mm-hmm. And people um, who couldn't break down fats like me oftentimes would go towards a more plant-based lifestyle, right? They, they mm-hmm. kind of go to these natural fats. And so when it comes to breaking down, you need to have the, the presence of the enzymes, uh, which is the, there's four main lipases that break down different types of fats. You need to have significant amount of hydrochloric acid mm-hmm. and the release of bile in the body, which is a, a kind of a concoction of enzymes that's released. It's manufactured by the liver and re- released by the gallbladder, which will break down fats in the intestinal tract and a good microbiome. And so Matt being the ketogenic guy and wanting to we always have these debates of which diet's better with each other. He wanted to <laughs> swing me over that I could do a ketogenic diet with him. And so he cultivated an enzyme formulation that focused mostly on protease and lipases with bile enhancers and then transport mechanisms. And so we did that. And then I could, guess what? I started taking that. I'm like, well, let's see how much fats I can take up. And I went, blew through my previous level of fat consumption without getting the stool in my body and uh, in, in my, like, wasn't getting the fats in my stool. And I was like, okay, it was just simply a lipase deficiency. And we were able to correct that. 
Amazing. Uh, let's talk about hydrochloric acid because this is, um, you know, a lot of people listening, uh, myself included at times are susceptible to waking up. And the first thing they do is pour themselves a cup of coffee. Um, yes. hydrochloric acid, why is it important and what the hell are we doing wrong there? Right on. So hydrochloric acid is an essential part of the immune system and digestive system. And first and foremost, I want to be clear that it's not that people have this big bowl of acid sitting in their stomach ready to break down food. <laughs> yeah. um, when you go through the digestive process, there's five stages. The taste, touch, smell food. Uh, if I say dill pickles and sauerkraut, your, your body will start to salivate. Um, you chew the food up and then it goes down the esophagus and into the upper cardiac portion of the stomach. This is where the enzymes present in the food is supposed to break it down. At 30 to 60 minutes, hydrochloric acid comes into the body. Now, in order to produce enough hydrochloric acid, uh, you need to be properly hydrated. And mm -hmm. with chronic dehydration being so strong for most yeah. people, they don't produce enough hydrochloric acid. And the average 30-year-old or 40-year-old just makes less than half of the amount of hydrochloric acid they did when they were like 15 or 20. Mm -hmm. So hydrochloric acid comes in at that 30 to 60 minute marks, and it has two functions. Number one, it's designed to disinfect your food from bacteria, viruses, parasites, any pathogenic organism that could damage your health or your immune system or your digestive function. Mm -hmm. The second thing that it does is it changes the pH um, from alkaline or slightly acidic all the way down to very, very acidic, somewhere between one and two pH. Wow. When it does this, some of the enzymes present in the food will become activated and some will be reactivated as it goes to the various pH ranges. And so things like proteins, different proteins cleave at different pH levels. So it assists in the digestive process. Those are the two functions of hydrochloric acid that we know of. Mm -hmm. And ironically, if you don't produce enough hydrochloric acid, what happens is there's a little sphincter on the top of your uh, stomach called the esophageal sphincter it'll actually stay open. Um, it's triggered by enough hydrochloric acid will close it. And you, if it's not, it'll start to ferment and gas will come up and you'll get some splash up and you'll get heartburn or acid reflux, yeah. which is super common. Mm -hmm. Now, the ironic thing is what do you do? You go to your, you go over the counter, you get some Tums, you get some kind of, you know, calcium <laughs> thing. You, you, you try and buffer that acid. Yeah. But you're, you're actually disrupting your natural immune system function and your natural digestive process. So it solves that problem, but creates another problem where you set yourself up for gut dysbiosis, for parasitical infections, for incomplete protein breakdown, all these sort of things. And so when you look at now, uh, and then if that's not strong enough, what do you do? You get a prescription and you get a proton pump. And, you know, PPIs, which the, you're only the cycle to just continues. <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to be only on that for four to six weeks. If you look at the medical literature and people mm -hmm. are on this for years. Mm -hmm. And the reality is we now live in a culture where in the United States, on any given day, there's 100 million people suffering from digestive issues. That's a third of the population. 25% mm -hmm. of the population is... Uh, using some form of over-the-counter prescription medication for digestive health, and 13% of the emergency hospital visits, that's people going to the hospital to the emergency situation or gastrointestinal-related illnesses. Mm -hmm. A lot of this is because you don't have enough hydrochloric acid or improper amounts. So guess what? There's a simple and easy test. 
So any of your listeners can do this. You take a quarter ounce or a quarter teaspoon of, of baking soda, mm-hmm. stir it up in four to six ounces of water, drink it down if you, on an empty stomach. If you don't burp within five minutes, you do not have sufficient levels of hydrochloric acid. And all you need to do is every time you eat, take a hydrochloric acid tablet after you eat and you'll be fine. The other thing is you really want to concentrate on hydrating. And one of the reasons, going back to your early part, is one of the reasons that people will typically um, take a coffee, let's say, in the morning to kick things started is number one is oftentimes we're using the um, cortisol as an energy system. So we get the caffeine hit, we get a cortisol adrenaline response, we start metabolizing that cortisol into energy units, we get clear, we go into fight or flight mode, we activate the you know, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and we're like, okay, I'm a lat. And, and, and there, there is an acid response to this. So oftentimes it does help us digest some of our food is, or you know, traditionally that goes on. But left unchecked, it creates a feedback loop where you blow out your nervous system, you end up with the chances of, of too much acid production, which what happens if you have produced too much acid, when, you leave, when the food leaves your stomach, you release what's called bicarbonate buffers, which is a fancy number for alkaline minerals. So this, it's kind of like your body creates a Tums mm-hmm. <laughs> to neutralize the acid before it goes in the intestinal tract. And if you don't do that, you get inflammatory conditions of the bowels, gastritis, ulcers, these type of things because you're getting an overproduction of acid and without sufficient amount of balancing that acid when it comes out of the intestinal tract. So in terms of sequencing, should um, people be thinking about this in terms of when they're having their meals? Obviously, you know, watch the coffee in the morning, but uh, having your meals, masszymes before their meal and then hydrochloric acid after, is that the right sequence? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And then if you were to, so leaky gut is an extremely common problem and people, a lot of people have it, right? And we can stereotype there. How would you, if you were somebody who was concerned that they had leaky gut, what sort of protocol would you look at? Great, great question. And we're going to go generalization here. Of course, please. Um, we're, not, we're not here to treat or diagnose any medical Of course. But I can say from the lot of people that we've experienced, there's two things. It's a couple, there's two different camps, I think, that's emerged. There's the uh, vegetarian camp and there's the vegan camp. I think that intermittent fasting is a great start. I yeah. think, um, and I think that's common for everybody or periods of fasting so that your body can start to repair because your body repairs things very well. Second thing is making sure you're providing an, the right prebiotics that will allow the good bacteria to, to formate in your system. And if you, you know, if you're taking, di- if you're taking probiotics, the lifespan of a probiotic is maybe 24 hours. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't have food. So for example, if you look at, let's take Matt and myself as examples, if you were to have taken a, a sample of his microbiome versus a sample of mine, we have completely different microbiomes. We need to eat foods that are relative to our genetics and our, and our, this, you know, this symbiotic relationship of, you know, 200 to 500 strains of bacteria, which are essential a symbiotic relationship that allows us to live. Mm-hmm. And, your diet will choose that. So you foundation have the right probiotics for your diet with the right prebiotics. Number one, add intermittent fasting. If you have a lot of challenges, you can also add uh, things like aloe vera regularly as, as, as a, as a shooter in the mornings to kind of 
smooth things out and also find as a prebiotic and as a disinfectant. And then you can go down. Uh, a lot of people find a lot of benefit from like bone broth, collagen type of dietary practices. If you're more on the, if you're okay with the meat products, mm -hmm. if you're not, um, and this isn't for vegans, it's more for vegetarians. You can use a, a an egg base product called IG Max. It's a yeah. patented product, and basically, it's 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 a patch for your guts. It allows your body to put the things together to start to put to fix the holes in your gut. And we have a team of researchers that work for us, which we test the products that we're doing, how well it works, and so. Funny you should mention this because we just we're actually coming out with a product called Leaky Gut, and we have a, vegeta a vegetarian version and a, and a, and a uh, for everyone uh, listening. He version. did not tell me to do this beforehand. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny you should ask that because it is an issue that we we've we've solved digestion across the board. You know, enzymes, hydrochloric acid, and probiotics are going to solve your digestive issues for ninety percent of the people. Mm -hmm. For long term serious conditions, you're going to probably have to get some specialization with some fasting, some aloe vera, some probiotics, prebiotics, probably go get a, a gut flora test and something yeah. that's going to patch that. You can go down the, the, the meat eating way uh, or you can go down the vegetarian side of things to patch that up. And for vegans, um, and a lot of vegans actually get into the, vegan, the vegetarian diet or a vegan diet because of gut issues and they restrict their way to a certain point, but at the, at the end of the day, they don't fix the underlying causes and leaky mm -hmm. gut is a big common one. And, you might want to soften your stance a little bit to, mm -hmm. to bring yourself back to balance before you go to the extreme. Mm -hmm. Wade, look, there, there are many different avenues we can take this conversation and I'm going to have you back for round two because uh, look, you and I have had previous conversations on parasites and we don't even, we haven't even gone there yet. Mm -hmm. uh, what I want to do now is transition into a final series of questions, just kind of sure. rapid fire, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, let's do it. What excites you most about the health world today? Oh, wow. Um, the fact that we can do specific testing and we can customize dietary choices for the individual where they are in the world and what they want to achieve. So if you're a high performing executive, we can develop a program around that. If you're a, a training athlete, if you're a mom at home or someone who just wants to have better long-term health, um, you can get customized information direct to your door, privatized coaching and specific systems, dietary practices and, and alternative practices, whether that's home saunas and electromagnetic machines or brain training. There's just this vast array in the biohacking world that's allowing us to really tap into the potential that we have as humans and the ability to communicate that information to us via podcasts such as this. Amazing. Uh, top trick for enhancing focus. Oh, Without a doubt, 40 years is in. Okay. That's a, that's a good one. Uh, book which has changed your life the most? Power Versus Force by David Hawkins, where he illustrates the map of consciousness. Probably, in, that's a precursor to the rest of his series, probably the greatest book in human existence. I'm trying to... I have another David Hawkins book right over here. Uh, and I was just trying to remember the name of it. It's... Uh, can't remember if it's surrender. What color is it? Uh, yellow. Oh, letting go. Yeah, Half letting go. That's it. So exactly. So I knew there's surrender in the title, but it's a fantastic book. Um, one last. I typically only ask three, but one last question, just given the time we live in, and just giving your experience. Top trip or top 
trick, not trip, uh, for people who are now just getting into this whole concept of uh, digital nomading, forced digital nomading? It really comes down to having a routine developed that you can perform at home. I think the biggest adjustment is when you're moving from an office situation to a uh, a personalized program is that you, we humans we we run on routines, and so for me it was having someone build a schedule out to matter where I am, where I'm going to happen. That I wake up in the morning and I look at my calendar, and I know I have a meeting at nine, one at ten thirty, one at eleven thirty, one at twelve, with whoever, whenever that I've got that scheduling, and mm-hmm. also inside of that, I have a routine that works for me as far as my self care. Self-care is every bit as important as your business care because your the, the, the effectiveness that you have inside your business is directly correlated to how well you take care of your health. And as we age, it becomes even more and more pronounced. And so I have my morning routine where I do my meditation, I do my exercise, I have my all my nutritional supplement intake that is really essential to get me going. Um, my quiet time, my affirmations, uh, and some exercise, everything I take care of my health first. So when I show up in my morning, I like to start my business day at 9 a.m. wherever I am in the world. Mm-hmm. I'm on fire at that moment. And I get up maybe at five or six. So for me, I need that three, four hours to get all that stuff in. And then now I've got nothing to worry about the rest of the day. I'm yeah. focused on like, I can, if we need to go to 11 o'clock tonight. I'm ready to go to 11 o'clock tonight. No problem. I don't have the energy requirements and I have all the, the components throughout the day to keep me at that high performer pace all day long. So I've got all my nutritional sufferings. I've got my nootropics. I've got my practices. I've got my little recess bases built in and I've cultivated that over you know decades of time, but you need to find out what works for you. Matt, he's got a different routine than I do and because he works in, he's more of a night guy. I'm more of a morning guy. So you need mm-hmm. to know what your chronotype is, what your lifestyle is, what your goals are, and never, ever, ever, ever compromise your health regardless of where you are, where you are, because it's going to bite you in the butt. Boom. I love that. Uh, Wade, where can people find out more about you and your company? And because obviously they're going to want to try the products too. Yeah, bioptimizers.com. You can reach us. We're on Facebook. We've got the Awesome Health Podcast. We kind of interview all the people that that mentor me in my life because I don't know all this stuff. I'm learning as well. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, it's all that stuff. You type in bioptimizers, you'll kind of find all of us. And if you have questions, answers, all that sort of stuff, um, you're more than welcome to go in. I literally answer every single question in the company about health uh, to the best of my ability. And so we, we do that. And then I guess the other thing is if you want to go and check us out um, at bioptimizer.com slash boomer, you can put in boomer10 as a code and you'll get a, a discount on any of our products and services. And we, I want to caveat that. We have an awesome health course that we give away, which is literally <laughs> 84 days, uh, five to 15 minute videos where people look at the practices and things that I've learned to apply to my own life. It's not all about supplements and stuff. It's just about the people I learned from, the practices I learned. How do I master this in a 15 minute a day routine? And uh, yeah, ongoing from that. So it's really that simple. Beautiful. Wade, thank you for well, really the time, this education process, but also the products. Like I, I use Masszymes, I use HCL, and I also, like, I love the magnesium product. We didn't even get into that. Like you somehow solved my massive problem of carrying around 
four or five bottles of magnesium every day uh, with just one simple bottle. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Awesome. To all the superhumans listening out there, have an absolutely epic day. All right. So I enjoyed that conversation with Wade and I didn't expect it to go the way I did. We talked extensively about travel, even more so before I clicked record. And his journey with spirituality to me is fascinating as I embark on my own. If you want to check out the show notes to this one, it's at decodingsuperhuman.com slash bioptimizers. I'll also link there where you can get your free Mass Symes product to try out because like I said, I use the product every day and this is free guys. I'm not trying to sell anything here. Head on over to decodingsuperhuman.com slash bioptimizers and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Wade Lightheart.